How many of you, this you know, maybe last week over Thanksgiving or as you're preparing for the holiday season, how many of you, while you're sitting there and you spent time with your family and you think, my family's just not normal. There's just nothing normal about my family. I see head shaking, I hear laughing. I think that we've all probably had that conversation. I think, man, my wife has a crazy family. Yeah. I spent time with them this past week, all 18 of them in one house. So yes, I saw lots of, uh, lots of craziness. You know, when we look back at our family tree, we can probably look at it and say, there's a lot of not normal there. I think if we dug into it a little deeper, we might look at it and say, man, there's a lot of sin in my family tree and the consequences of that sin. And that's what we're going to look at today and what God's grace does in and through that consequence. You know, what I hope to show you from the life of David is that sin does have consequence and it's painful and it hurts. On the one side, God wants to make the pain visible. Irreversible consequences of sin are so real that those of you who are on the brink of sin, when you see those consequences, you will be scared to stop. And at the same time, I want to give you hope to those of you in the midst of those painful circumstances to show you that, yes, your pain is very painful, but, yes, God's goodness and mercy and grace is greater than your sin. And that's something we can hold on to. And God can reweave all of the things in, in your life, even the consequence of your sin and stupidity for his ultimate plan and for your good. You know, I want to show you both sides of this this morning. And here's where we've left David the past two weeks. Two weeks ago, Bill did a great job walking through the story of David and Bathsheba. In the last week, we looked at Psalm 51 of David pouring out his heart to God, seeking forgiveness from God for the sin that he, multiple sins that he had committed um, with Bathsheba and, and murdering her, her husband. And the prophet Nathan, if you'll remember, came through and told David, because of your repentant heart, he says, God has put away your sin and you will not die. It's almost like he's saying, if you weren't going to be repentant, God was going to strike you down, is what he was essentially saying. But because you have repented, God's going to allow you to live. But here is going to be the consequence of your sin. He said in verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house. Verse 11, your wives will be unfaithful to you. In verse 14, the son born to you from this affair will die. Man, that's some, that's some painful consequence for his sin. And before chapter 12 is over, David's newborn son is dead. And David experiences pain like he's never experienced before. In the next five chapters in 2 Samuel, you're going to see David's family turn into the Jerry Springer show. That's, that's what's going to happen over these next five chapters. And let me describe to you in a few words what happens in David's family tree over these next five chapters. Adultery, murder, incest, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, rape, 
substance abuse, one brother murders another, stepmoms leverage their kids against one another, David refuses to speak to one of his sons for two years, another for five years, and one of David's sons seals his dad's house and sleeps with his stepmoms. That's craziness. You think your family's messed up? I think David takes the cake on anything you've got in your family. David's family is messed up from this point forward. These five chapters are way too much for me to read on Sunday morning. I, you know, if you want to read the entire story, I, I recommend you go and read 2 Samuel. Um, but I'm going to kind of walk you through and summarize a lot of what happens here in David's life and draw some application for you. You know, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, David's firstborn son, Amnon, develops a perverted crush on his stepsister, Tamar. And wants her so bad that he cannot even eat. And Amnon hatches a plot where he gets Tamar alone and he rapes her. What did David do in response to this? It says in verse 21, when King David heard of all of these things, he was very angry. That's all scripture says. Scripture never records that he confronts Amnon or dealt with the situation. That's all. He just gets angry. He just kind of lets it go. Well, Absalom, who is Tamar's full brother, watches all of this, and he cannot believe what's happened to his sister. And that nobody, especially David, his own dad, has done nothing about it. And because his dad does nothing, he starts to plot his own revenge against his brother Amnon. You have to wonder the disappointment that Absalom felt toward his dad during all of this. You think, David was probably Absalom's hero. You know, his dad was the one who killed the, the giant Goliath. As little boys, they probably played David and Goliath, and he could say, I'm going to be David because he's my dad. You know, some of us dads like to exaggerate stories about how good we were in sports in high school and we like to live relive the glory years and David could truly say I killed a nine-foot giant and he wasn't exaggerating and he would say I was only 15 and I did it with rock and there was nobody that could top that and Absalom probably as a boy would be like is that true dad and he would say, yeah, I would, look, it's right here recorded in, in Samuel. His daddy was the giant slayer, the hero of Israel. But where is David now? And why hasn't he come to the protection of his family? Absalom begins a two-year scheme to take vengeance on Amnon in chapter 13, verse 28, says that eventually Am Absalom got Amnon away from the palace. He got him drunk, and then he murders him, one brother murdering another. Now, again, what does this sound like? Getting someone drunk, then murdering them. You see, the writer is showing you David's sin is being replicated in the life of his sons. The sin sown by the father is harvested in the son. So after Absalom murders Amnon, he flees for his life 
three years, David knows where Absalom is, but he never once goes after him or even sends word to him. Eventually, Joab, who is the captain of David's army, comes to David and says, let me bring your son back. And David finally consents to Joab to bring Absalom back home. And in verse, chapter 14, verse 24, Absalom comes back in Jerusalem, comes to the palace, and David makes a big, big mistake. Again, we see David doing this time and time again after Bathsheba. He refuses to see Absalom. He says he must go to his own house and he must not see my face. And he refuses to speak to him for another two years. Now this is five years after the event with Tamar took, after the event of of killing Amnon took place. So here's Absalom. He's done wrong to be sure, but he has to be confused. He's thinking he acted in love for his sister, defending her honor when my dad did nothing. And he needs a dad to talk to him and say, let's talk about, son, what you did and why you did it and the pain in your heart. Let's talk about my failure in this whole situation. He needs a dad to embrace him and to listen, but instead he's greeted only by a message that David does not want to see his face. And Absalom goes to his own house and David refuses to see him for two more years. Are you feeling any better about your family yet? (laughs) David's got a messed up family at this point. You know, I think men, our greatest temptation as men is not outright wickedness, but I think our greatest temptation is apathy. Just apathy in the home. This goes all the way back farther than David. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and the fruit. And we just keep repeating this sin. And this is what David did. It happens today. Why are men so absent in the home? Why are men so absent in the church? Why do women across churches in America make up more than 60% of the attendance? I read earlier that overseas missions in places where the work is really dangerous, women volunteer, women volunteers outnumber men three to one. Three to one. Why is that? Why is it that women says, yes, I'll go to the dangerous places and take the gospel message, but men are like, eh, what's on ESPN today? There's some truth. In that Most men are not the leaders in rearing their children. They are not leading in their discipleship or their discipline. They turn that over to their wives. You know, church, my most important job of what I do here is not pastoring this church, but raising my family. You guys can find another pastor, but my kids only have one daddy. And that is my most, most important job. Well, chapter 19 or chapter 14, verse 29, throughout these two years, Absalom is sending messages to David through Joab, the commander of his army, requesting an audience with his dad, but Joab won't return his phone calls because he knows that David does not want to see Absalom. So Absalom gets mad and he sets Joab's fields on fire to try 
to get his attention. Well, eventually David allows Absalom back into his presence, but things still aren't right. There's never really any conversation about what happened. They did like what most families do, just gloss it over and move on. I think if we were honest with ourselves, I think most family struggles, we, that's the way we handle it. We don't ever address it. Let's just move on. And Absalom begins to plot against his father to take the kingdom from him. Now, here's a few things about Absalom. Let me tell you about him. First of all, chapter 14 tells us that he is tall and good-looking, and that he has long, flowing hair. You know, I thought about putting a picture of Fabio up on the screen this morning, but I don't want, I don't want to you know, distract any of our ladies up here this morning. But that's, what, that's the first thing that I think of when I think of, of Absalom. He commanded attention when he walked in the room, just like what David used to. Chapter 15 says he started standing outside his father's palace, and when people would bring their, their cases to the king, Absalom would put his arm around them and say, yeah, I know you've got a real issue here. I feel your pain, but unfortunately, the king's just not available today. He's untouchable. And so he began to turn the heart of the people away from the king. Verse 5 of chapter 15 says that when the people would see Absalom, they would bow down because he was the king's son. And he would pick them up and say, don't bow down to me. We're all the same, you and me. Don't look at me like that. So, and it says in verse 6, so Absalom, chapter 15, verse 6 says, so Absalom stole the hearts of all of Israel. See what he's doing. He's playing a long game here to get his dad back. And then when the time was right, Absalom staged his, cue, his coup against his dad. He drove David out of the palace. Here we see David going from the greatest king, in the history of Israel, to committing this sin, and it's just a trajectory all the way down after that. In a show of power, Absalom sets up a pavilion on the roof of David's palace, and he sleeps with some of David's wives that had been left in the palace. It's a public humiliation of David. To let everyone know, He's stolen his daddy's kingdom. Now, don't miss what's happening here. Absalom steals everything a man has and sleeps with his wives on the roof. Do you guys remember this story? Remember this story from a couple of weeks ago that we looked at? Absalom is just repeating his father's sin. The sin sown by the father is harvested in the son. In fact, in a little irony, he is doing it in the very place from which David had hatched his plan with Bathsheba. Man, you see the consequences of sin are so awful. Chapter 15, verse 30 says that David flees from Absalom up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. He's lost his kingdom. He's lost his family. His son has publicly humiliated him. And he's running away weeping. To me, this is one of the lowest points in all of the Old Testament. Again, where is the guy 
who stood up to Goliath with so much confidence in God. Eventually the tide turns. David's able to muster enough army to take back his kingdom. Absalom and his followers are driven out into the wilderness. The army chases after them, but David gives them this explicit instructions. Chapter 18, verse 5. He says, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Absalom is fleeing through the forest. The story tells us in scripture. His horse goes under a heavy brush and his long hair gets tangled in the brush and literally leaves him suspended, hanging from the tree by his hair. <laughs> now, imagine this. It was almost, it's almost funny if it weren't so tragic. He's hanging there by his head. And David's men quickly surround him. And one of the guys says, David said, do not hurt him. And Joab steps in and he says, nonsense. Now, Joab's probably still mad that Absalom burned all of his fields, which is like taking away all of his wealth. And Absalom says, nonsense. So he gets three javelins, verse 14, and he thrusts them through Absalom's heart. Meanwhile, people are bringing word back to David about the battle. And to every single one of them, David asks, is my son Absalom safe? And finally, the runner comes with the news the battle has been won, but Absalom is dead. Verse 33 is a very sad verse. It says, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. This is the first time in all of these chapters that David refers to him as son. In all of these. Up to this point, he's referred to him as the young man. But he calls him my son. What the writer is showing you is that for the first time, David's really feeling the emotion as a father. And it's too late. He continues in his pleading. He says, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's almost impossible to represent the intensity of the emotion in that verse. And so ends the tragic story of David and his son Absalom. Now, one of the questions you have to ask when you read a biblical story is, why is it in here? Why does God give us this story? Well, clearly, it's there to show us, number one, the thing that we've been driving home is that there are consequences to our sin. Yes, God forgives us. He is a forgiving God. But we still face the consequences of those sins. And yes, it's there to show us that, men, we must be the leaders and we must be proactive in our families and in our homes. But before you can get to that, at least in a helpful way, you have to see that there is a much more primal purpose, I believe, in these stories. And that is to show you, and that is to show Israel that David is not the ultimate king that we are looking for. 
the king we need, the father we need, is like David in some ways, but is so much more than David, the king and father who would prevail where David failed. You see, the reality is that all of us are like Absalom. We have all rebelled against God. We try to steal God's kingdom for ourselves and publicly humiliate him on the rooftop of our lives when we tell him, this is my life, this is the way I want to live. But here's the differences that we see. Absalom was driven to rebellion because of David's failures. We rebelled against God even after he had been the perfect father to us. Man, God is the perfect father in every sense of the word. He is there for us, but yet in our sinful hearts, we still rebel. Another thing we can see from this is Jesus showed us the love that David failed to show Absalom. Remember when Absalom came home, David refused to even meet him at the gate and said, I don't even want to see your face. And so for another two years, Absalom was estranged from David after running for three years. So for five years, David's had nothing to do with Absalom. Do you remember the story that Jesus told about the prodigal son in the New Testament? The son that had run, left home and shamed his father and spent the inheritance. And the son finally comes home after being away. And when he came home, how did the father treat him? Did the, father, the son came home and said, I just want to be counted as one of your slaves. No, he embraced him. He ran out to meet him. Before he could get an apology out, he's pouring out his love and his forgiveness upon him. And it said that David fled from his son up the Mount of Olives, away from Jerusalem and away from danger. Man, that was such a tragic and such a sad point in this whole story. But if you remember, in the New Testament, when we look, it was on the Mount of Olives there that Jesus ran to us his estranged sons and daughters, down the Mount of Olives, into Jerusalem, into the danger of the cross. At the end, David could not and did not save Absalom's life. When Absalom died, David said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, I wish I could have died in your place tell you something unique about the Mount of Olives is that scripture says when Jesus returns to this earth he will come and he will stand at the Mount of Olives to, to take us and to rule and reign this world. Don't miss the significance of the Mount of Olives in this whole story. You should hear in the words when Jesus cries for you in Matthew 23, 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I wanted to gather you to myself. Put your name in place of Jerusalem. Oh, Robert, oh, Robert, 
how I wanted to gather you to myself. Then on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. He was saying of you and me, my son, my son, because he loved, God so loved the world so much that Jesus died for us. David wanted to die in Absalom's place, but he couldn't. Jesus could die in our place, and he did. Thank God for Jesus. And so Absalom died hanging in a tree with a spear in his side for his rebellion. Jesus died in a tree with a spear in his side because of our rebellion. Because of our rebellion against a holy God. You see, Jesus is the true and better David. He is the real king, the ultimate father. And that's because he is not just the king, he is the redeemer and he is the savior. And so in him is where the search for the true king ends. You see, Jesus gives you the ability to have hope in the painful consequences of your sin and break the cycle of sin in your family. Even though David faced the consequences of his sin, God still had a plan for David. He still had promised to give him an eternal kingdom and to use his life for good. The Psalms 23 that says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That, that, that verse has not stopped being true. God had a plan for David's life and God still uses David's family to bring the Messiah to this earth, which we're going to look at next week. Some of you this morning are dealing with the consequences of your sin this morning. In one sense, we all are. We all are. You see, the world is under a general curse because of our sin, and, the def and because of that general curse, people get hurt. They get sick. And ultimately, we face the ultimate penalty for our sin, which is death. Some of you are suffering from the direct consequences of your sin, a broken marriage, an estranged son or daughter, or a body that is messed up because of drugs, or you lost your job. But you see, Jesus took the ultimate penalty for that sin, and because of his death, he takes the sting out of those consequences. The word given to David is clear to you. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Psalms 23, working all things for your good, Romans 8, 28. Your sin will not be the final word over you. In Christ, you have a new identity. In Christ, we all have a new reality. Because Jesus Christ cried from the cross, it is finished. Your new life can begin today. You'll find this hard to believe. He can and will use even the painful, self-inflicted consequences of your sin for his kingdom and for your good. The tragedy is that David had really lived with this awareness, all of, all of this, 
awareness, he probably could have saved his family from a lot of heartache. Maybe just maybe the reason he never had the courage to confront his own sons of their sin is because he felt like he had lost his moral authority after Bathsheba. God had spoken forgiveness and healing to David. David was not perfect. He was a sinner, but he had tasted the grace and goodness of God. And I would say that he had grasped that, that had he had grasped that, it would have given him an even greater authority to speak into the sin of his children. Some of you maybe here this morning feel like because of your sin and because your children know about your sin, you can't speak to them about the sin in, in their own lives. But if you have repented and grasped the grace of the gospel, you can say, listen, I'm not perfect. You know that. I'm not telling you to be just like me. In many ways, you, my child, you need to forgive me of my sin. But let me tell you how good God is and what God did for me through his grace and forgiveness. But let me tell you how good God is. And I would suggest to you that God's grace gives you as parents a greater authority in your kids' lives than your perfection does because you were able to show them you were just like them and the grace and salvation you have found through Christ is what they can have access to as well if they would just seek him. The point is God's grace can free you from the paralysis of guilt. Finally, embracing what God has remade in you in the gospel will help you break the cycle of sin in your family. Some of you, your parents, have been at odds in the home and you are headed there too in your own marriage. Some of you have been treated unfairly and now you're treating others unfairly. Some of you some women in here have been neglected by your husbands and your life is a passive aggressive attempt to pay them back. All you're doing is repeating the sins that others have hoisted upon you. And if you look at this story, that is what Absalom did. And it didn't end well. His sovereign grace can take even the bad decisions of others that have impacted your life and use them for good. But you have to access that power by faith. When you believe, God starts to work redemptively through your family and through your life. Get out of the grave and get on with God. what God has for you in the future. The gospel not only saves you for your past sins, the gospel rescues you also for the future and it delivers you in the presence by giving you new life. Let's be a people that believes the gospel, which is the grace and mercy only found in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.